Welcome to Euractiv's Tech Brief podcast. My name is Laura Kabelka. I'm Euractiv's tech reporter from Berlin. For an overview on all things tech in the EU, sign up to a free Tech Brief newsletter or visit our website, euractiv.com. This episode is powered by Google, who work to create a safer internet by making their products secure by default, private by design, and putting users in control of their data. Last week at Google's developer conference, I.O., they, for example, announced that they're continuing their journey towards a more secure, passwordless future with two-step verification auto-enrollment to help people instantly boost the security of their Google accounts and reduce their risk of getting fished. Learn more at safety.google forward slash authentication. This week, we are looking at cyber norms with a focus on Germany's role and practices. For this, I am happy to welcome Alexandra Paulus, who is a fellow for international cybersecurity policy with the German think tank Stiftung Neue Verantwortung. She's an expert in cyber norms and diplomacy, which is exactly what we will be talking about today. Alexandra, hi, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Great to be here. So to start with, uh, could you explain what cyber norms are and who shapes them? Sure. First, I think it's helpful to take a step back and to understand the problem that cyber norms are really trying to solve, um, because then we can only understand how they solve it. Um, so basically, information and communication technologies, or ICTs, are now such an important part of our lives that it's really it's, it seems almost old fashioned to point that out, of course. Um, and all these devices and networks may have and create security challenges. Um, this is very basically true at the level of individual users, um, for example, whose privacy may be compromised by a surveillance technology. And it's also a problem for whole societies. Um, for example, what we've seen a lot in the past now, if cyber criminals lock up the computers of cities and municipalities. Um, but ICTs also create challenges for international security because um, these technologies allow for yeah, really new ways in which states or states and non-state actors can interact with each other. Um, so yeah, to illustrate this, for example, espionage no longer necessarily requires training some of your population for years and years and then sending them off to other countries where they might get caught for their activities and suffer the consequences, but instead you can now simply use surveillance software. And especially ICTs also allow for conflictive activities below the threshold of armed conflict. Um, these can be temporary disruptions, for example, of websites, but it's also possible for one state to produce physical damage in another state through cyber operations. And the most famous example of this, I would say, was the Stuxnet malware, um, which targeted turbines in a uranium, uranium enrichment facility and thereby impacted really the Iranian nuclear program. And the problem now is, of course, that since information and communication technologies are still relatively new, at least, and they continue to evolve, states can misinterpret maybe the actions of other states so that one cyber operation may at one point even escalate into traditional kinetic conflict. Yeah, and so against this backdrop, um, policymakers worldwide were really wondering how to reduce these sources of insecurity. And one approach that has since become a main instrument for addressing these challenges are cyber norms. Um, and cyber norms basically are rules for acceptable behavior um, that regulate what states should or shouldn't do regarding ICTs. These norms are not directly legally binding, 
So there's no court that is readily available where state A can sue state B for violating a cyber norm. But it's important to note that they are politically binding. Um, so that means that states can hold each other accountable for norm violations. Um, yeah, and since you asked, so who shapes cyber norms? Um, that's a really great question because these cyber norms, of course, don't simply emerge out of thin air. Um, instead, states and also non-state actors shape them through long debates over the years. And this is what I focused on in my PhD uh, dissertation. These can be diplomatic forums, for example, at the United Nations, where diplomats negotiate really words on paper. But they can also be shaped through what states do, so through their actions, um, for example, simply by doing certain things that then become over time more and more normal and more and more accepted. Um, yeah, so at the same time, of course, different states will often disagree about what states should or shouldn't do. So it's often quite a struggle. So what is Germany's position when it comes to these cyber norms? And is it very active? I would say Germany is indeed very active. And um, from my point of view, the most important feature of Germany's cyber norms posture has been its support for a norms-based approach. Um, so for example, there is a, a United Nations forum that was crucial for cyber norm development. It's called the Group of Governmental Experts or GGE. And from the start, Germany has really been strongly involved in this forum. Um, For example, Germany was the only state beyond the five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council that was part of all six GGE groupings that have taken place um, so far. And they even shared one group. Um, so this means that Germany has had a seat at the table throughout really this whole process between, um, yeah, that began in 2004. Um, and also the German government um, has supported um, one particular initiative of a group of private companies led by German manufacturer Siemens. Um, this initiative is called the Charter of Trust. It's now supported by um, more than 230 companies, and it specifies, for example, um, that states should pass regulation that requires baseline cybersecurity standards on software updates and also promote cybersecurity education for all citizens. And the German government has supported this effort through the Federal Office of Informa for Information Security, um, or BSI, which is really this central government agency um, in Germany that's responsible for domestic cybersecurity policy, but also for international engagement. Um, at the same time, uh, it's challenging to pinpoint really individual cyber norms issues that Germany has pushed forward in the cyber norms debate um, alone, because really in this policy field, like in many others, Berlin has always very much looked for coordinating with their European counterparts um, to ensure that there's one coherent European posture. Um, now, that is not always an easy task, of course, um, but indeed, um, I would say that much cybersecurity policymaking um, and policy coordination has been taking place at the European level. Um, so, for example, especially in this field of cyber diplomacy that we're talking about, so this question of how do um, states cooperate and coordinate internationally um, regarding cyber norms, um, the European Union has passed what is called the Cyber Diplomacy Toolbox. Um, and this toolbox was an important step not so much only for developing cyber norms, but also responding to cyber norm violation. So what this toolbox does is um, that it coordinates how European um, Union member states 
respond um, to to cyber operations, to cyber norm violations, for example, through common statements, um, and also through uh, sanctions, for example, or criminal indictments. Um, this happened, for example, after the a cyber operation that um, was conducted for espionage purposes on the German parliament, the Bundestag, um, in 2015. So there is a difference, though, between diplomatic commitments that are voiced apparently uh, very much so by Germany versus the actual domestic policy. Could you answer the big question of today, whether Germany actually practices what it preaches? Yeah, and this is exactly the question that I asked myself um, when writing um, one analysis piece um, for the Israel Public Policy Institute. And... Um, To, um, to answer this question, what I did in my paper is that I zoomed in on one very specific issue um, that I think is quite important for cyber norms debate and cybersecurity policy, but that has so far not received a lot of attention. And that is um, a vulnerabilities equities process or VEP. Um, yeah, and to, to understand what Germany has done in this field and how it relates to Germany's diplomatic commitments, um, I think it makes sense that I explain in a few words what a VEP is, um, because it's it's a little bit technical, but bear with me. Um, so the question is, well, the question behind a VEP is, what do governments do when they encounter software vulnerabilities? And it's important to answer this question because software vulnerabilities are a cybersecurity concern because they can be leveraged through exploits. Um, exploits are codes that exploit software vulnerabilities or security flaws. And these exploits can then be deployed in cyber operations. And these cyber operations can serve various purposes. Like I said before, this can be espionage, like in the case of the Bundestag hack, um, but also sabotage, as in the case of Stuxnet. But so really, software vulnerabilities are at the heart of this problem. And so if the vendor of a particular software learns about a vulnerability, um, they can provide a patch or a mitigation measure. So usually this will be an update. Um, software users can then roll this out on their device. And if they do that, the vulnerability can no longer be exploited on that um, device. That's what we call patching. And um, this is why these previously known vulnerabilities are really less interesting for cyber operations. Instead, What um, the perpetrators of cyber operations are really interested in are new vulnerabilities that are not yet known to the vendor. And these are called, yeah, in uh, cybersecurity slang, so to speak, um, zero days, because the vendor has had zero days to address them. And so now, after this uh, little technical detour, um, coming back to, to the government level. So the question is, what does a government entity do if they either discover or even buy, um, there's a market for zero days. So if they discover or buy a zero day vulnerability, um, they then have a choice. So they can either temporarily keep this vulnerability or they can immediately disclose it to the vendor so that they can then um, issue a patch. But the interesting thing is, if you, if you think of the government not as a unitary actor, but as a group of different agencies with different interests, this often produces a conflict of interests um, between these different agencies. So for example, intelligence agencies or law enforcement, um, or in some cases, even military entities might want to deploy a cyber operation 
and they may then therefore want to keep this vulnerability open and um, argue for yeah for keeping it and retaining the vulnerability. But on the other hand, entities responsible for cybersecurity and safeguarding digital rights or com consumer protection, like the BSI in Germany, they will presumably argue for disclosing the vulnerability to the vendor. And this is where the VEP, the Vulnerabilities Equities Process, then really comes in. So um, in the VEP that was established in the US, which is one that, yeah, that is... Um, has been published and that we therefore know quite a bit about. Um, after a governmental agency submits a zero-day vulnerability to the process, then all governmental stakeholders that are in some way involved in the process can consider their respective equities or interests. And these may include um, questions like how likely is it this, that others may discover this vulnerability? What harm would it cause um, if it were discovered by others? And but also which national security benefit can it provide, for example, if it's leveraged through an exploit um, for the purposes of a cyber operation. And then based on these different voices and these different perspectives, the government will then decide whether the zero day vulnerability in question is either kept open or whether it's disclosed immediately to the vendor. And so, yeah, to, to summarize, a VEP really doesn't solve the conflict of interests that will probably always be there be between different government agencies, but it provides a structured path for, um, yeah, for answering this very challenging question. And now linking this to cyber norms discussions, um, it's important to note that there is one key document that has really been, yeah, the most important cyber norm document to date that has been endorsed and welcomed by all UN member states, so by the whole international community. And this say, uh, states that, um, yeah, oh, the name is the 2015 GGE report. Um, and this states that, I quote, uh, states should encourage responsible reporting of ICT vulnerabilities and share information on available remedies to such vulnerabilities to limit and possibly eliminate potential threats to ICTs and ICT-dependent infrastructure. And then, so this already says that, um, uh, yeah, it's in every state's interest and states should um, responsibly report ICT vulnerabilities. Then in 2021, um, another UN document um, specified a bit more clearly that, again, and I quote, at the national level, states should could consider putting in place impartial legal frameworks, policies, and programs to guide decision-making on the handling of ICT vulnerabilities. And so basically, in short, we can really see that these norms document point out that it is not um, required, but it's very desirable that states establish a VEP. And now going back to the case of Germany, um, the question is, well, why should Germany comply with these norms? But then I would go back to your previous question, right? So what has been Germany's position regarding cyber norms? And the German government has repeatedly stated um, that supporting these cyber norms is really one of its policy priorities. Um, it's also in line with how Germany sees itself as really more of a normative power that supports the rules-based international order. And in that case, Germany should, of course, um, this is the point that I make in my paper, Germany should, of course, also act accordingly. So what is the impact of this divergence of commitments versus um, domestic policy? Does it have an impact on Germany and also on other countries? 
is of course quite methodologically challenging um, to find out um, what what are the consequences of this decision. Um, but yeah, research on on cyber norms processes and norms development more broadly tells us that. Um, it's really important that states who promote these norms, so-called norm entrepreneurs, are also seen as credible and as uh, yeah, reliable supporters of these norms and that they really practice what they preach and act in line with their actions. Because then over time, as I said, these norms develop quite slowly over the years through continuous practices and um, supportive statements. And so these um, these yeah, these actions over time will then strengthen the norm if they are in line with them. Or on the other hand, if the norms are continuously violated, then over time they will only be words on paper and will probably be weakened. And what should be done about this? Do you have some recommendations for Germany, steps that could be taken? I mean, at its most basic, my answer would be that Germany should, of course, um, in general, act uh, in accordance with the diplomatic commitments um, that they have supported. Um, but of course, um, maybe a first step towards reaching um, one fine day this um, this future objective would be to really think strategically um, about um, the ways in which there are divergences between diplomatic commitments and um, national policies. And, for example, identify these in a cyber diplomacy strategy um, that really, and it's interesting because this, this process that I'm, I'm suggesting mirrors a little bit the VEP process, the vulnerabilities equities process. So it is not, again, it's not surprising that different government agencies will have different interests. And so in these cases um, that I was talking about, for example, regarding encryption also, um, domestic law enforcement agencies, for example, have very different interests than um, the German foreign ministry and its diplomatic members. Um, but I think it would be really worth um, having uh, a discussion about where these conflicts of interests arise, also where they don't arise, and where would Germany also acts very much in line with its commitments, which is also the case, for example, I would say regarding critical infrastructure protection. Um, where maybe the German policies are not perfect yet, but they are, they are quite well developed and the BSI is really seen as a reference internationally. Um, but then again, in cases where these conflicts arise, um, I would say that it would be really interesting to have these discussions and to strategically weigh the interests of the different agencies against each other, uh, but then also explain a little better um, to Germany's international allies and partners um, how Germany seeks to implement these norms or then explain um, yeah, why they really don't act in uh, accordance with them or maybe not yet act in accordance with them. What about other countries in the EU? Are there maybe some best practice examples that Germany could follow? In the EU, we have a few states that are really active um, in the cybersecurity policy and also cyber diplomacy field. So one state that immediately comes to mind is Estonia. Estonia has really been driving this issue for a very, very long time um, because in 2007, Estonia experienced, um, yeah, really a watershed moment um, and one, one of the first cyber operations, which from our perspective today was really um, very limited because it was all, it mainly referred to um, 
websites, um, and, but also governmental and bank websites um, being unavailable for a limited amount of time. But at the time, um, Estonia was already quite digitized. So without these services, um, Estonia or the whole Estonian society really felt that um, the cyber operations could have a very strong real world impact in the well-being of their population. And at the time, this was still a relatively new insight. I mean, again, we're talking about 2007. Um, and so since then, Estonia has really become an international reference, I would say. Um, for example, yeah, thinking about cyber diplomacy efforts, um, what comes to mind is that Estonia used its membership in the United Nations Security Council, which is the highest organ of the United Nations, to, for the first time, um, bring this issue of cyber operations and how they may affect international security to this um, to this body. Um, so for the first time, uh, under Estonian leadership, this issue was discussed there. Um, and also, um, it's important to note that Estonia was really vocal now during the COVID pandemic um, to, to talk about um, how cyber norms um, can protect the health sector. So one, one other important norm, as I said, is um, uh, regards the protection of critical infrastructures. And there's a, a mirror norm, so to speak, that prohibits that states um, conduct cyber operations that target critical infrastructures to really protect these sectors that are critical for the functioning of society. And during the COVID pandemic, one sector that was particularly critical was, of course, the health sector. Um, and so Estonia was really vocal um, and yeah, in, through different diplomatic channels, um, but also through very concrete projects, um, really was making an effort to strengthen the protections of the health sector and to make sure that, yeah, that the cyber operations that we, of which we saw quite a lot, um, both uh, criminal and political during the pandemic, that these should really be, be banned. Right. Um, to shift to another topic that is closely related to cyber norms, um, a few days ago, the EU publicly attributed um, attributed a network attack to Russia. Can you explain what this attribution means also for the German context? This is a really interesting case. Um, maybe first um, I, I can give a little background and then I can um, say what this means from a cyber diplomacy standpoint. Um, so what happened was that just one hour before Russia began, um, began invading Ukraine in February, Russia also conducted, as you say, a cyber operation. And this operation targeted a U.S. company, uh, which is called Viasat. And Viasat provides satellite communication services um, to many different entities. And this is where this really gets interesting, because on the one hand, Viasat provides communications to the Ukrainian military. But on the other hand, Viasat also provides um, communication services to Ukrainian civilians um, who, yeah, for, for internet connect connectivity. And Viaset, as I said, is a U.S. company that has customers um, in different countries all over the world. Um, and so when this Russian cyber operation um, targeted, um, targeted this company and the satellite communication services were subsequently brought down, so they, they were disconnected from the internet, um, this had effects on military, on the Ukrainian military, but also on Ukrainian civilians. And then outside of Ukraine. So, for example, um, again, looking at this from a German standpoint, um, 
in Germany here, uh, wind turbines or wind parks were affected. So they are often located in very remote um, connections, uh, sorry, in very remote locations. And um, therefore they rely on satellite communications for remote maintenance. So again, remote, I'm really talking like offshore, for example. So it's not feasible that technicians go there um, in person and and check on the tech uh, technology of the wind turbine. And so remote maintenance is quite important. Um, and when these services went down for weeks on end, um, yeah, this was maybe not, not super critical because the wind turbines were still producing energy, um, but it did cost a lot of money in the maintenance on the maintenance front. And from a political standpoint, what does this attribution mean? Because for some background, just a few days ago, um, the German government actually said it had not registered any cyber attacks in relation to the war to its notice, um, notably. Um, but now this huge uh, case is attributed by the EU. So what does this mean for Germany? It's important to note that it's really quite challenging to clearly attribute cyber operations to their perpetrators. This is because, um, yeah, in general, uh, it is possible to to remain anonymous. Um, it is very possible to fall to plant false flags in cyber operations. So it's really tricky um, to know exactly who was behind a cyber operation. But in this case. Um, There have been private cybersecurity companies who analyzed um, uh, the malware in this case and the operations that that happened. There was also the Ukrainian cybersecurity agency um, who who gathered information. And then, of course, um, now we have this diplomatic statement that attributes that clearly attributes um, the operation to Russia. So this the statement was um, supported. First of all, by, by the European Union, um, they put out a statement, so all 27 member states, um, and then also the Five Eyes states, um, which is the Five Eyes is, is this intelligence um, uh, sharing uh, community of the UK, the US, New Zealand, Australia, and Canada. And they all said that they, um, they are very uh, strongly convinced that Russia was behind this operation. Um, yeah, and so the question is, of course, okay, well, it's just a statement. Why, why would states publish such, such statements at all? And um, I would argue that these attribution statements are quite important political signal, signals. Um, so first, states that, that go uh, on the record and say that another state was responsible for a cyber operations, they tell the world that they have this capability of attributing cyber operations to their perpetrators. Um, and this is important because for quite a while, um, policymakers, but also academics, were convinced that cyber operations were such an interesting tool because um, the perpetrators could always um, have plausible deniability. So they could also, they always had the chance to say, oh, well, it wasn't us because it was quite hard to prove who was behind it. But as we've seen in the past years, more and more cyber operations have um, been attributed publicly to their perpetrators. And again, this goes back to the work of private cybersecurity companies, but then also um, to, to intelligence, um, information by intelligence agencies, um, diplomatic uh, communications, um, potentially um, possibly military information. And so when states go on the record and say, look, we know that Russia did this, um, now there is less room for Russia to deny its involvement in these operations. 
The authors then also, of course, publicly name and shame Russia for its actions. Um, and this is important to note um, that they can later potentially impose more impact, impactful consequences. So attribution is first um, is often the first step to um, to later, for example, um, pass criminal indictments against the individuals that are involved or even pass sanctions. And then finally, this is not just a signal to Russia, um, but also there is a number of other states that have repeatedly uh, conducted cyber operations against um, European or Five-Eye states. Um, these are mostly Iran, uh, North Korea, and also China. And so putting out this statement and signaling attribution cap capability um, is also a signal to these states that they, they can hide less well behind this veil of anonymity, so to speak. And that's it for this week. Don't forget to sign up to our free Tech Brief newsletter to receive a comprehensive overview on tech affairs in the world of European politics and policy directly in your mailbox. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast published on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and Amazon Music. I am Laura Kabelka. Thank you for listening. Bye.